Let's go to God's word. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60. So if you go in the middle of the Bible and you find the Psalms, uh, hang them right. Isaiah 60. And we'll start in verse 1. And this is God's word. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see... They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Let's pray one more time. Father, I certainly submit this um, to you. We do, and uh, I pray that this lofty uh, passage uh, would be uh, handled by you and that the truth would be spoken and received here today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have many times scared my wife and my friends and my coworkers and my little uh, tech staff. We have all the little artistic, nerdy, uh, technical people. Kind of, we kind of are a team. And uh, I scare those people uh, by saying things like this. I would rather make a terrible decision than make no decision. Because if I make a terrible decision, at least I've moved forward a little bit and I can make another decision. It might not be perfect, but uh, I can make another decision. I can make another decision. I hate sitting there like a lump. And that, uh, that makes people really nervous when, they, uh, when they're planners. Like my wife is a planner. She likes to plan. Um, or when people are responsible for a budget. They don't like it when you say, I'd rather make a terrible decision than no decision. They're like, but we have a budget. And so that frightens people and it frightens Christians and, and so on people who are tentative by nature. If you've ever worked for a large company, which I have, Service Master, well, Terminex. Um, but if you've worked at a large company, there's just layers of management of, of, above you and around you and beneath you. And, and uh, everybody's afraid to make a decision because they're going to be held accountable for it. And so there's like, it just things get kind of stuck and that drives me nuts because I want to move forward. Um, and I, I, I should probably restate the way I say that. I, I I don't want to make a sinful decision. I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with making a sinful decision. But dumb, uh, imperfect, kind of clunky, I'm totally cool with that because I hate sitting there like a lump and going nowhere. So why do I start this way? Well, um, it's because I think that our passage has a main idea, these nine verses. Um, 
If the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon, which I believe that it should be. The meaning of the passage must be the message of the sermon. What is the meaning of the passage? So if you were sitting down and you were looking at these nine verses, you say, well, what is, what is, what is God trying to tell us? Um, here's what I think it is. Um, oh, yeah, hang on. Here's my text. Hold on. Here's the big point. Ah, there it is. Human and world history is heading somewhere. Now, that's a... That's a comforting thought. It's not stagnant. It's not random. But human history, world history is going somewhere. And I know you might be thinking, well, that's the most rudimentary observation ever, uh, that things are heading towards something. Uh, But I suggest to you that that is exactly on point uh, with our culture that we live in. And as Christians, it's exactly on point in the living out of this Christian life that, that, that Christianity, human history, the world is heading somewhere. Now, I, I want to be very careful because I have no desire to step into a political cesspool or po- uh, politicize a pulpit or anything like that. So just, just know that I'm, I'm very cautious of that. But what I want to say is this. The notion that if we all just pull together and if we all just listen to each other, and if we hear each other, and if we just, you know, come together, we can solve the problems. That is folly, my friends. That is folly. Um, that, that the world has come to some kind of conclusion or some kind of perfection, um, some kind of um, some completion. That's utter nonsense. That's not biblical whatsoever. Now, listen, should we pull together? Yes. Should nations hear one another? Yes. Should we care about the earth upon which we live? Absolutely, we're caretakers. Should we care about poverty? Absolutely. Should we hear one another? Yes, but friends, don't you know this whole, this whole notion, well, if we all just spoke one language and if we could all understand each other, do you realize that God is the one who confused human languages? God's the one who did that. You know why? So that sin would not abound. If we did hear each other perfectly, guess what we would do? Sin, sin, sin. God's the one who confused languages. And so what I'm saying is this. It is good to do good. It's good to do good. It's good to be charitable. Um, it's good to work for betterment. It's, it's good to serve humanity in humility. It's good to care about people. It's good to hear. It's good to tolerate other opinions. It's good. But don't make it your God. Throw out the insanity and go to the sanity of the scriptures. I'll tell you, Kim Jong-un, he don't want to listen, apparently. He don't want a dialogue. Okay, but I got a better illustration than that. Your mean-spirited children in the back of the van, they don't want to hear either. They, they don't want to listen to each other. They don't want to listen to you. In fact, when they're 13, they think you're stupid and they hate your guts, and they don't come out of it till they're 28. When they crank out a kid and they go, oh, this is what they went through? This is horrible. I mean, the, the, the whole notion that we can just, oh, we can work it all out together if we just do it. That's silly. It's just silly, ladies and gentlemen. It's, and what about marriages? Marriages break up all the time. And that is in the context of the most profound human relationship there is where two people have pledged to sacrificially serve each other for a lifetime. And yet, they fight. Why? Well, the problem, of course, is sin. Yes, we should work together and tolerate one another and work toward betterment and all that stuff, but don't make it your God and think that we human beings can solve everything. We 
We can't. There's a sin problem. Uh, but there's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about, friends. It's the good news of the gospel extended to the entire world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what takes a bunch of misfits and people tripping and stumbling through life and and misery because of sin, and he fixes them all up and brings them together in a collected people, a loving people, a charitable people, a humble people. That's the good news of the gospel. Human and world history is heading somewhere. So let's look at our first of three points, which is this. First one is this, before and after. Uh, Look at verse one again. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, right away, that implies something, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got arise, shine, the light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen. I mean, doesn't that imply something? It implies a condition of darkness. Light comes, it dispels darkness, all right? And you notice that the light, when it's been dark, um, and and sin has made the world dark indeed, when the light comes, it, it shines on things. Now, Chapters 59 and 60, and this is why this point is called before and after. Chapters 59 and 60 have been called a before and after picture. And um, they, they, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I'm about, I don't know, 12 to 15 pounds overweight. And um, what's funny about that? But anyway, so, and so I kind of enjoy getting on the internet and looking at before and after pictures. You like Seth, whatever his name is? You know, the, the, the quirky actors and stuff like that. Now, you look at actors, celebrities, and you look at the before and you look at the after. And that's very motivating to me because I go, hey, look it. You got the one thing and you got the other thing. You got one state and another state. You know, a state of size and, and all that too, but a state of health. And so the before and after is very kind of effective. You know, it hits you right then. You go, oh, it's dramatic. Well, you have a before and after here. Um, and let's look at the before. Chapter 59, verse 1. Behold. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Now, I would say that is a very bleak description, isn't it? That God will not acknowledge or hear, could save, could hear, does hear, but won't. Because that's the nature of sin. It puts a barrier in between something that is white hot pure and the one that is is tainted. Well, it goes on. It's a a scary description. Verse 3 of chapter 59. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Um, No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty empty pleas and speak lies. How about skip down to verse 7, chapter 59. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed blood, innocent blood. Uh, They have thoughts of iniquity. How about verse 8? The way of peace they don't know. There's no justice in their paths. How about verse 9? Justice is far from them. Um, Righteousness does not overtake us. Verse um, um, 12. Our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. That is dark and bleak. It's it's a scary before picture. Um, Verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Um, Look at verse 15. This is, truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Um, The Lord saw it. It displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered, 
There was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation. His righteousness upheld him. And in verse 23, this is where the whole picture flips. Excuse me, verse 20. Um, A redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's children, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Well, you got this bleak, I mean, personal, like penetrating stuff about my own heart in blackness. And then the tide turns when God intervenes and talks about this redeemer figure who's gonna come to Zion. Now, You see how dramatic is the coming of the light. Look how strongly the double imperative is put in in verse one. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Look at verse four. Lift up your eyes all around and see. Do you get that that's saying the same thing in a different way? It's kind of saying the same thing with a different slant to it. Arise, lift up your eyes. Um, uh, Shine, your light has come. See. So the whole narrative is suddenly changed because of this redeemer figure that God has sent. Also, there's another little cool thing in here called an inclusio. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not. It's a literary device and it's a lot, it shows up in a lot of Hebrew poetry. And of course, you'll see it all over the Psalms. Uh, this is of course written in a, this is prophetic, but it's written in a highly stylized way. And there's kind of an inclusio here. An inclusio is kind of like an envelope. If you put something in an envelope, it's enveloped, it's contained. Or you might think of it as a set of bookends. So you got a bookend here, and you got a bookend here. That's, a, that's an inclusio. And uh, whenever you see those kind of jump out of the scriptures at you, uh, it's an important thing. It's done on purpose, and, it, and it's done to, um, to really kind of highlight what's in between. So what's in between? What's the inclusio? Well, in verse 1, you've got a rise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And uh, that word could also be translated flash or gleam. Um, The glory of the Lord is gleaming, has flashed upon you. And uh, then it goes on at the end of verse three. It says, nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. So you've got risen and rising, or your translation might have dawn. So you've got this gleaming, shining upon, and then you've got this dawn that's coming up, this great light. Those are the two bookends. What's in between the two bookends? Verse two, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Um, Chapter 25 or seven of Isaiah has the word word shroud, that that darkness is like a veil, it shrouds uh, humanity. Now, stop and think about how inclusive this then is. Um, in the middle of all that contrast, in verse two, it says, behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the big question for the original reader, if you were an Israelite and you read this and you were a first reader or a first hearer of this and you go, mm, the Lord will arise upon you and uh, his glory will be seen upon you. The big question for them and for us is, who is you? Well, um, look at verse three. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now think about how comprehensive that is. You've got nations, that's people, and then you've got 
kings, or your translations might have rulers, rulers of the people. So you've got the governed and the governing, the governors. That, that's a comprehensive uh, statement, and it's meant to be so. Uh, look at verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Now, that's, that's good news, right? And, and a faithful um, a Jew would remember very well God's calling of Abraham. So God calls Abraham. Don't turn, but I'm in Genesis 12. Um, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I mean, from the, the instant that God singles out Abram and says, I'm going to bless you, it doesn't just stop with Abram. No, no, no. I mean, from the very first approach of God to Abram, it doesn't stop with Abram. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. It goes on to say, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Families, that is peoples, that is people groups, that is races. All of the peoples will be blessed through you. And of course, God brings about a savior over many, many hundreds of years through this man and through this nation. But the point is that the nations would be gathered in. That, that, Christians, wouldn't be, that, that Christians wouldn't be cloistered but that we would be receiving and that we would be sharing of the gospel and that we would be looking for the other people who are you, uh, the other people who are included in this thing called grace. And then look how dramatically the text continues. I, I, I teared up when I read it, and I know when I tear up and read the Bible, pe- people think something's wrong with me, but um, it's just so worshipful and such a beautiful picture. Um, verse four, lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather, they come to you, All right, so the the Israelite or the Christian today is going, oh, I love that. Mm, They all gather. They come to us. That's wonderful. They come to us. Uh, Oh, I love that idea. But listen, read on. Your sons shall come from afar. That's talking about the Gentile world. It goes on. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Is that not a beautiful and poignant picture? I mean, you know how moms do. They got a hip and they stick a kid on there. And there's another one, get up here, boom. And they got a kid on their hips. Well, it's saying, your sons and your daughters, guess what? They're out there still. It's not just that we're letting some visitors come on in and we're nice to them and we're tolerating them and we're coexisting with them. They're children. They're family. They're bloodline. They're brought into the fold of faith. How profound and how personal is that? And, and, and it was God's plan from the beginning when he approached a pagan from the land of Ur of Chaldees, Abraham. Now, application for your life. We look around at uh, contemporary Christian culture, and uh, there's a polite um, relationship amongst Christians, uh, polite. Um, it's still segregated in a way, but it's segregated for lots of reasons. Uh, it's segregated because of theology, you know, certain churches uh, uh, interpret uh, the scriptures one way, and you tend to gravitate toward the people who, who kind of are in your flavor, all right? So theology kind of uh, takes the church and puts it in different uh, camps. The zip code also does that. Um, I'm from Chicago, and uh, if you're from Chicago, everywhere you go is 40 minutes. 
Every drive, everywhere, grandma's house, 7-Eleven, it's all 40 minutes. And so people think, oh, it's only 40 minutes. I'm just, that's a normal drive. 40 minutes in Memphis is like driving to, you know, Cancun. Um, it's, I'm uh, 40 minutes, are you kidding? And so wherever a church happens to be in a zip code, it ha- tends to pull from two or three zip codes, and that, that kind of, you know, is a little uh, hunk of believers. Um, other things that, that kind of separate us or at least segregate us a little bit is styles of worship or the kind of uh, preacher that you've got and you kind of connect with and the form of church government, that kind of separates Christians and all that. We, we celebrate each other. Sometimes we merely tolerate each other, but friends... It is so much more profound in the eyes of God than just going, well, that's a body of believers over there, so just let them do that, and uh, just let them do that, and let them do that, and uh, that, that's their church, that's their church, that's their church, this is our church. That's not the way God views it. That's not the way scriptures prevent, present it. Um, verse five, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Now, I've got a couple other translations for you, and I rather love the, the NIV says, your heart will throb and be filled with joy. How about this one, Holman? Your heart will tremble and rejoice. How about the King James Version? I know that Ron Goss has one. He's probably the only one. Um, your heart shall fear and be enlarged. When you look at the nations pouring into the church, Coming to Jesus Christ, the races, the people groups, the blessings that are being poured out through God's calling of Abraham and, and his covenant with Abraham. When you see that, your heart should be throbbing with joy. Um, I've got a living illustration for you. We've got this little dog um, named Julia, and we call her Jules. And so she's a Yorkie poo, and uh, cute as can be, just the cutest. I mean, we just stare at her going, I can't believe this creature's so cute. It doesn't even look real. It's so cute. Um, but this dog is kind of neurotic. And, and if, if I ever get like kidnapped and I've been kidnapped for two years and then I get cut loose from some deal of the government and I get off the plane and CNN's there and there's my wife and the dog jumps out of her arms, that dog's not going to come to me. Um, what that dog is going to do is the same thing she does every time I come home, which is go, ah, she just won't stop. We're like, stop, stop, stop already. She freaks out. She's so excited to see me. Her tail's wagging. Her body's going crazy. She's jumping on furniture, jumping off furniture, going crazy. But when I come down to her like this, I go, come on, Jules. She's like, oh, I can't. I just, I go, wouldn't even dream of it. I just can't even do it. I'm just so happy to see you. And I reach down and I think I've calmed her down. And I just can't do it. I can't do it. She's just too excited to see me that she can't even come to me. And I look at that little thing, and I'm like, what a weird little creature. But, you know, I think that might be what we're supposed to be like. Well, we go, I mean, what else does it mean to, to tremble and rejoice? Isn't that a strange thing? I think, it's, I think only a Christian could understand that, what it is to tremble and rejoice. We go, oh, God, you are so wonderful. And this thing that you have made, this gathered people, your church is so wonderful. I just, I tremble and rejoice all at the same time, like that stupid dog of the umlofs. That's how we're supposed to view the church, friends, with, with God's perspective, like that, uh, and all who will come into her midst. All right, second point, the hope of the nations. 
Um, it's not just a, a wide-ranging church that is celebrated. Yeah, it's a wide-ranging church. Uh, all the peoples of the world, that's, that's wide. It's comprehensive. We do celebrate that. But rather, it's not just that. It's also that those people will submit joyfully to Israel's God. Second half of verse 5. Um, you shall see and be radiant, the heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. Now that turn to you, I don't know what your translations say, but you might find turned over to you. That's really the idea, that it'll be turned over to you or brought to you. The idea is that these people come in and they are, by God's grace, finding themselves submitting to Israel's God, submitting, uh, bringing what they have and surrendering. And that's why it's called surrendering. And it's not surrendering to an enemy who hates you and wants to hurt you and humiliate you and degrade you, but it's surrendering to a God who loves you. And it's surrendering to this glorious gospel spectacle. And we pick it up in verse six. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Now, I know you hear that and you go, that doesn't sound like a glorious gospel spectacle that camels will be covering me. What does that mean? Well, of course, the Bible is written to span uh, many a culture and many a year and many a society and many a language, uh, and it's supposed to communicate something to us. So what is it communicating? A multitude of camels shall, come, uh, shall cover you. It goes on. The young camels of Midian. You know where that is? South. All those from Sheba shall come. You know, uh, 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 excuse me, Midian and Ephah. Ephah, you know where that is? East. Uh, All those from Sheba shall come. That's even farther south. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Mm, Sound familiar? We three kings of Orient are. Um, They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. Uh, The rams of Nebaioth shall come. That's northeast. Um, If you even go down, well, well, I'll touch on it in a second. But but in in verse 9, talks about the ships of Tarshish. Um, not really sure where Tarshish is. It's probably in Spain. But if it is, that's west. And the idea is that they come from all over the place. Um, it's, it's expansive. And uh, before I read the rest of verse 7, let me just warn you not to get hopped up on, on, on Tim Watelahay, um eschatological gobbledygook about... Um, a, a sacrificial system being reinstituted. Um, if, that, if that is over your head, don't worry about it. Um, if it's not, just don't get duped into that. Um, Christ is the final, the final sacrifice. Uh, he is all that's needed. The point here is this. Look at it. I just don't want you to get tripped up. It says, all these flocks uh, shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Shall... So you've got uh, flocks, you've got rams, Don't think it's about a sacrificial system. The point is this. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. That's the point. God receives them personally, closely. This is something in Israel I can understand. Acceptance at your altar? Wow, God. I mean, you'll accept them at your altar? And he goes on to say, I will beautify my beautiful house What's he talking about? He's talking about bringing in the world into the household of faith. That's what makes his house beautiful. That's what should make our hearts pump. Now, application for your life. This is what the kingdom is in God's own description through Isaiah. 
It's this people that are brought from afar and they find each other and they rejoice and they exult in this God. You know, um, Tammy and I have been to New York, I don't know, a few times um, in our lifetimes, in our lives. And, um, uh, you know, we've stayed in the theater district before and we walked to a church. Um, but we've also stayed in Queens and taken the subway to a church. And that's a, that's a different experience. You get on the subway to Queens, and uh, I remember we did that, and it was cold, and it was raining, and it was, you know, and take the subway, and you get out, and you have to walk, and we find this old musty old building that's a Methodist church on a Thursday, and it's a Unitarian church on a Friday, and, but it's a Christian church on a Sunday. And so um, we go to this church, and, uh, you know, they're welcoming you, and, oh, it's so good to have you, blah, blah, and everybody there is cool, and um, they say something like, now, after... The service is over. Join us in the church basement. Well, let's put that on pause for a second. Now, you're from Germantown, Tennessee, and you're like, join us in the church basement? I don't know what sounds more horrible than that. <laughs> they go to the church basement. You ever been in a church basement? It's bad. Join us in the church basement, and they say, for some cookies. And uh, we're from out of town. We're like, the basement for cookies? I mean, I'd rather be killed than go to the basement for cookies. But you know what you do when, when, when church is over? You go to the basement for cookies. You know why? You look across the congregation in New York. It looks different than this congregation. You, in New York, you look across the congregation and you go, wow, this is a snapshot of heaven. You've got all these peoples, all these people groups all these races, and they've all gotten on some subway car or some mode of transportation, and they've come from afar. And they they make their way, and they come for that service, and they worship God, and you know what they do afterward? They go to the basement for some cookies. Well, why wouldn't you do that? They found each other. You want some deep theological advice? Stay for the cookies. Uh, If your heart isn't throbbing and filled with joy over the church, um, it ain't the church's fault, it's yours. I'll tell you, um, I've been here a long time and I've seen a lot of people come and go. And I've seen a lot of, I don't like this and well, I don't like that and I don't like this and I don't like that. Or there's a lot of, somebody really ought to fix, blah, blah. I have noticed a problem over here and somebody really ought to do something about that. Guess what? You noticed it. What do you think you're supposed to be doing? Somebody ought to run around. I'm going to voice my... How about go to Jonathan Todd and say, I've got a ministry idea. Can you help me assemble a team of people and maybe fund me and point me in the right direction so I can make a ministry difference? It's very easy to take a grenade and go, I don't like this and this ought to be changed. Or when people go, I don't like organized religion. Every speaker of that sentence is foolish. Every. I was really burned by the church, and I haven't gotten over it, and so I can't really get back in the church. Foolish, 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 foolish. Your heart is supposed to be throbbing over the church, over the collected people of God, over all the misfit toys that God has brought into his his sack. All right, our last point. A family portrait. Uh, verse 8. Who are these 
that fly like a cloud. You ever seen a cloud moving briskly on a windy day? And you look up at the sky and you're like, wow, it's like it's just scraping across the sky, the cloud moving briskly like that. How about this? Who are these that fly like doves to their windows? You ever seen flocks of birds flying by, swooping and and finding a place to land and they all descend on a tree? Or they all descend on a a wire? Well, this is even better because they're doves. And when they go to their window, you know what they're doing? Where are they going? Home. You know, it's the cuckoo with the uh, pigeons on top of the roof somewhere. And they fly around and they eventually come home. The doves come home. And so when the doves come to the window like that, they're like, who are these that fly like doves to the windows? Who are they? Um, it, it's, it's the world. It, it, it's, it's the lost. It's those that have been regenerated and brought into the household of faith. They've come home. Uh, that, that's the point. The doves have come to the window of their home. And that is the nation, the, the, the hope of the nations, friends. It's not merely that humans cooperate. It's great. Let's cooperate. Let's cooperate. You know what? Should, should we be deeply concerned that there are people in this world that don't have clean drinking water? Heck yes. I mean, you know, remember Morgan Martin? I'm straying from my nose. Remember Morgan Martin? Um, she and I had the same Camelback water bottle. And um, I was like, Morgan, where'd you get that bottle? Because it's very unique. Very unique. Uh, she said, well, I was watching David Letterman one night and Matt Damon was on there talking about clean water and how there's not clean water in this one part of the world. And I, I bought a, a bottle. I said, so did I. The same thing. I was watching David Letterman and Matt Damon had that thing. I said, I basically bought it just to uh, aggravate all my right-wing friends. <laughs> Matt Damon, water bottle. But friends, should we care about that? Yes. Should we long to communicate? Should there be a United Nations? Yes, it's, it's messy, it's goopy, it's sticky. Uh, should we have treaties and alliances? Yes, we should have those things. I know it's a mess, but friends, the hope of the nations isn't that we just cooperate and that we hear each other and stop trying to kill each other. It's more than coexisting. It's more than tolerating. It's family. This is a family portrait. It is afforded humanity A family situation only given us in the gospel of grace. And do take note of how deeply personal God is in all of this. In verse 9, he says, the coastlands shall hope for me. For me, the coastlands. And again, Tarshish, Spain, if so, it's the West. But the point is, the church is gathered from everywhere, and they come for a reason. And what is the reason? They come for God. They come from afar For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel has made you beautiful. A couple more things we'll close. Um, One theologian who was just, he he died, I think about a year ago, Alec Motier, I think is the right way to say his name. But he was awesome. And um, he's one of these really, 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 really smart guys who, when he, reads, when he reads the Old Testament and Hebrew, Hebrew literature, especially Hebrew poetry, highly stylized things, he, he breaks it down into a big um, order. And I got a picture of his order, okay? Here's his order, all right? And so I, I, must, I must confess, a lot of times when guys do this, it drives me nuts because I feel like they're a little bit stuffing things into their outline, all right? But he's outlined the passage, and what I want to show you is this. I mean, look at you got the, the top one, A1, the Lord, the light of Zion, verses one through five. Okay. 
Then you get to the bottom, A2, the Lord, the light of Zion. Ah, yeah, so you see, oh, well, kind of, you see how similar that is? And you work your way in. Um, the second one, the city of light, magnet to the world. It's pretty cool, magnet to the world, isn't it? Um, and then you look at the one on the bottom, the transformation of Zion, material and spiritually. And so you can see that this is one of those academic structures. But what I want to show you is the thing in the middle. In the middle. And this is his whole point. Zion, the key to world destiny. And here's what, he, I, I, I read that. He said, he said, the shape of this poem is its message. I kind of like that. He's saying the shape of the way this is structured, these verses, actually all of, all of chapter 60. He's saying the way this is structured is its message. And at the center of the message is Zion, the key to world destiny. Zion, believers, Zion, Jerusalem, Zion, the church of Jesus Christ. It's the key to world destiny. Another commentator said this, people are streaming from afar to the only bright spot on the whole earth's horizon. Do you get that? It's the only bright spot on the earth's horizon. There is no other method There is no other philosophy. There is no other theology. It's the only bright spot on the earth's horizon. What is that bright spot? It is Zion, the city and people of God. All right, last thing I'll give you is this. In verse nine, the name of the Lord, look at the end of it. The name of the Lord your God for the Holy One of Israel. He has made you beautiful. The question is this, who is? is you. You is the church. It's comprised of the peoples of the world, but it is the church, the beautiful house, the thing that God treasures so much, the thing that's supposed to cause our hearts to throb and thrill and tremble and rejoice is the church. You remember that. The next time you look at our messy world, our, our hurting world, our miserable world. You remember that. And you also remember it the next time you sing. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Righteous Father, um, It is so easy to be complacent in our Christian walks, and it's so easy to be selfish. And and honestly, um, the the longer we live and the more seasoned we think we become, the the easier it is to become self-sufficient. But the reality is you have gathered in misfits from all over the place. And uh, the church is not, uh, it's not the cleaned up awesome people. It's the people who have surrendered. It's the people who have felt the need for a savior. It is the, the people who understand that, that they, were, they, they were shrouded in darkness and needed the great light. We thank you that you provided that in the Lord Jesus and we pray, Lord, that as Christians, we would have hearts that um, throb over the reality of the church. We pray that we would tremble and rejoice and that all the little uh, deflections we have, all the little annoyances, um, all the all the all the pressures of the outside world 
Uh, we just pray, Lord, that we would see clearly that uh, the great spot of hope on the horizon is Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, we're just so glad to be brought into the, the household of faith. So, Lord, gather us, gather us again, gather us again, gather us happily, and do that so that the world may look at us in wonder and say, God is really among them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.